Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Who was Jack the Ripper? Between May 11, 1887, and February 13, 1991, a succession of horrific murders shook Victorian London. Over a period of three years and nine months, 16 women were attacked, of whom only three survived. At the time, the police believed these atrocities comprised two or more distinct and unrelated sets of assaults, with several of the killings becoming known as the Thames Torso Murders, and some of the remainder, with varying degrees of consensus, the infamous Whitechapel Murders. Despite the best attempts of contemporary detectives, no individual was ever formally charged or prosecuted for these crimes. As a result, an entire subgenre of true crime, dubbed Ripperology, has arisen as countless researchers and armchair sleuths have attempted to solve the 130-year-old mystery. Who was Jack the Ripper? Northampton of England professor and author of Jack and the Thames Torso Murders, Dr. Drew Gray, joins us today from across the pond to share his wealth of knowledge on Jack the Ripper. Welcome to Murder Most Foul, Dr. Gray. Thank you. Yeah, well, um, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, why don't we begin for my audience? Again, I've done my research, but they haven't. Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your educational uh, standing now. Uh, you teach at university, uh, et cetera, and how your connection to your academic work has brought you sort of dovetailing into uh, this book. Completed a PhD in, in the history of crime way back in, in the, when it was black and white, as I always tell my students. And um, I specialize in 18th and 19th century crime history. I, I'm actually, I have kind of two pathways on that because I, on, on, the, on the one hand, I specialize in things like murder and Jack the Ripper and um, I teach on Jack the Ripper and I do a lot of work with Ripperologists who are the, the kind of guys that research this as amateurs. I'm quite keen on those connections between amateur history and professional academic history I think there's a lot each other can we can learn from each other which I've been teaching for 10 years which is takes the Jack the Ripper murders in 1888 as the focal point to explore London's London's sort of political and social history which is a fact the 1880s are a fascinating period I think for both our nations um, they're really interesting. Now do you um, do you believe that <clears throat> the murders uh, covered in your book, Jack and the Thames Torso Murders, um, were committed by one person or more than one person. Well, uh, the problem with the problem with 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 this this particular murder case, this particular serial murder case, is is I'm not sure what is accepted anymore. Um, I think this thing, this, the, the grounds seem to shift quite a lot in in this case. It's generally accepted that there were five murders committed by the same person. But it has to be said within that, 
that one one or possibly two of the five what are so-called canonical in the canon canonical uh, murders are not accepted by everybody as being by the same individual most people i think agree that it was an individual there are some people that have argued that it might have been a pairing or you know the the the, the main killer had a had a a sidekick, you know, a helper, and there are some. We could we could talk about that in in, in certain ways, um, and I think very strongly now the area is kind of accepting there were probably six murders. They they add one person to the to that list, um, but the police file, which is, I mean, you know, if you went the the one piece of evidence we have that there was a police investigation, if you like, which is stored in in our version of the National Archives. Um, would say there were nine. There are nine women's names in that particular police file. So you kind of the starting point is when the police in 1888 were putting the case together, they had nine names. They then they then bring that down to five, and that's probably where most people researching the case would agree. But I I go back to the beginning of that, which is that not everybody agrees. So we don't have consensus. We have majority views. Most of us amateur sleuths call this fiend Jack the Ripper, but historians, of course, refer to the area where the murders occurred, so these are called the White Chapel murders. Where did the name Jack the Ripper originate? Um, well, the, the name Jack the Ripper comes from a letter written um, well, a letter received by the Central News Agency, which is kind of like Reuters, or I, you must have a, yeah, you have Reuters. So um, that kind of organisation, which then sends news out to various newspapers. So that's how it ends up in the Times or the Evening Telegraph or whoever it is. Um, and that was a letter that was received partway through the murder series. So once the murders had started to happen, th this letter was received. And it's, it's famously called, and your listeners could, could Google this quite happily, uh, other search engines are available um, and call, call it, it's called the Dear Boss Letter. It actually has an American twang to it. And it's kind of claiming responsibility for the murders and it's signed Jack the Ripper. And that's, that's where we get that, that name. Um, if you wanted to be, if you wanted to think a little bit more culturally about this, the name Jack is quite an important name in, in English mythology and, 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 and sort of social history, because Jack kind of gets appended. So Jack the lad, Jack in the box, Jack Tar for the English sailors. I know you called them limeys, but, you know, English sailors called Jack Tars. Um, Jack and apes, also Jack is, a, Jack is being, a, being the diminutive of John. You know, it's that, it's that kind of common name. Um, and in, in the 19th century, you also have a, um, a character called Springhill Jack, who's kind of almost like, and again, if, you're, if your listeners are interested, Google Springhill Jack, and you'll, you'll probably come up with these wonderful images that look tremendously like the Cape Crusader from, from Gotham, you know, the Batman character. He's, an, uh, he's, a, he's a character that appears in what we could call Penny Dreadfuls, which are early versions of comics that come out in the 19th century. Jack the Ripper comes from that one letter, which is probably penned by a journalist, encouraged by his editor. I think we know that almost for a fact to help sell newspapers. And the other thing about this case is this case survives to us, really, because of the newspaper coverage at the time and the sensationalism. And so another thing that I work with my students on is, is the idea that fake news is not something identified by your last president. It's something that has been around for hundreds of years. So Dr. Gray, take me and my audience back to London uh, at the turn of the 19th century. Uh, tell us what uh, the city was like, what the people were like um, during the time when these murders were committed. Yes, okay, so um, I think one of the things that's important to recognize about London is that it's, um, a, sit uh, it's a city of of, um, a city of a lot of contrasts. I think that's probably the way. And um, much as I guess New York must have been in the 1880s and 1890s, you know, very poor areas, 
Uh, London has very poor areas of which Whitechapel, Spitalfields and Whitechapel, which are on the east side of the city. And the east is traditionally associated throughout history with the smellier trades. It's where the tanneries are. It's where the sewerage is. Um, it's where the slaughterhouses are. Uh, and that's because the wind, the London's prevailing wind blows in, a, in that direction. So it blows out towards the sea, so out towards the, where the, the, the Thames is emptying out um, on that side of England's coast. Um, then you have the affluent west, the West End, the shining lights, um, you know, the, 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 all the shops and the theatres, the theatre districts. So I mean, further on from that, you're into sort of places like Kensington, up towards Buckingham Palace and all that kind of, the posh bit. And London can be, it's not true to break London into these sections because there are pockets of wealth and pockets of poverty all over the place. It's a very mixed city now and in the, in the late 19th century. Some of the most poorest areas of London are in that Whitechapel area. And what we're talking about is tremendous density of housing, people living um, in tenements. Um, and again, they're, they're, you know, I've been to New York and I've been to the fantastic tenement museum there. And I kind of get a sense of a sense of that. Um, you know, the area is 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 poor. There are lots of workhouses. Um, there's lots of immigrants. Um, we have a huge immigrant population, Jewish Jewish Eastern European population, but also Irish, um, Chinese in, in, in Limehouse. Um, so a real melting pot mixture of peoples. Um, and the contrast is with that kind of rich world. The East End is, the East End of Whitechapel is, is very associated with poverty, with crime, with immorality, although these views are put down by pushed down from middle class people looking at working class lives. If, if a working class family are living seven to a room, sharing a bed with truck or beds underneath and everyone's working in the same space and the middle classes can't cope with the idea that that must, can't be anything but bad. They don't want to do anything about it necessarily. They don't want to improve it, but they want to kind of look down on these people. And I think also London, like the rest of Britain in the 19th, late 19th century, is very hierarchical. It's a very class-ridden society. Um, it's very difficult to move up. It doesn't have that American dream idea that, um, that, you, have the, that you have in the States. It's, it's know your place. And there's very little support for people if they've fallen through. You know, there is no safety net to fall through. But if you're on your uppers, and that brings people into Whitechapel, which is why you get a lot of crime and why, of course, you get a lot of prostitution. I mean, if you take the five canonical victims, and let's name them, because I think that's important. Um, so you've got... Um, Marianne, Marianne Nichols, usually known as Polly, um, Annie Chapman, often known as Dark Annie for the colour of her, 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 her hair and her eyes, um, Elizabeth Stride, um, or Long Liz Stride, as she, she was nicknamed because she was a bit taller than women generally were. Not, she's about five foot two, so she's not exactly a giant. Um, Catherine Eddowes or, or Kate Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly, um, Mary Jane Kelly being a little bit younger than, than some of the other victims. They were all described at the time as prostitutes in the newspapers or as unfortunates. The, the, the newspapers rarely use the word prostitutes. Unfortunates, fallen women, euphemisms, which are very common in Victorian society. Um, and I think partly they were defined as prostitutes because they're all very poor, generally with the exception of of Mary Kelly, who, um, who could afford her own regular digs, her own, even if it's in the poorest street in London, the worst street in London, in Dorset Street, all of them were kind of living in, in like the sorts of lodgings where you pay by the night. You know, you're, that, and that's, that, there was a lot of these sorts of lodging houses in Whitechapel. You know, you, you haven't got enough money to rent somewhere. You get your rent money, and that gets you the bed for the night. And that probably means a shared bed or it doesn't mean much of a bed, 
Um, and so these people are really on their, I think we call them on their uppers or the, you know, we're really, they're really dead end in their lives. And um, I think these women are going out and trying to earn a living. And at certain times of the year, you can earn a living. So you might pick hops in, in, in certain parts of the year, you know, for the, for the beer industry, you might do a bit of dressmaking or cleaning, um, scullery work, that kind of thing. But if you can't get work, what are you going to do? Sell themselves. So it's difficult. Are these women prostitutes in the way that we sometimes think of prostitution as a career? I don't think so. Are they forced into prostitution because they've got very little other choice? Yes, I think that's the case. So these um, unfortunates, as you call them, um, became um, his victims. He's picking victims which are easy and of course prostitutes will put themselves on the street late at night in the early hours of the morning they're often they've often invariably perhaps been drinking they're in the prostitutes will also seek out darker places they'll also go with strangers despite the fact that they might not like the look of them i mean and they've got no choice if you've got no money um then then even when there's a serial killer on the loose and the women of whitechapel are warned to stay at home as the police warned them they still go out because there isn't a, an alternative. No one's going to pay for their bed for the night if they don't find the money. Um, there are suggestions that the women were particularly targeted, um, i.e. those specific five women were targeted, but I'm not sure I've ever seen any evidence that will convince me that that's the case. Um, but then we're into thinking about motives as well. So let's... Um start talking about the individual victims of Jack the Ripper. And again, it, it depends on where we want to start. I think we should start with Martha Tabram, actually, because Martha Tabram was discovered in the early hours of the 7th of August, 1888. So, um, and she was discovered right in what, you know, the, 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 um, the American author Jack London described as the abyss. He, he, he called the, that part of the East End, the worst part of the East End, right? around Flower and Dean Street, where all the, the poorest housing was. He called it the abyss. Um, and I always start there when I'm taking students on walking tours of, of that area. And that's pretty much where all walking tours would start. Uh, and Martha was found, she'd been stabbed 49 times, 39, 39, 49 times. I can't remember which way, one of those, far too many times. Um, and only one of those blows would have been necessary to have killed her. So clearly, her murderer, it made it different from other murders. Murders were not, they weren't to a penny, but murders, and particularly murders of prostitutes and murders of women, were fairly, they weren't uncommon in, in late 19th century London, domestic murder in particular. And prostitutes were often beaten up, they were left for dead, even if they weren't murdered. But this was different. This was a, this, increased, this sort of horrific frenzied stabbing. And then... And initially they thought it might be the work of soldiers. That kind of case went cold, the police had nothing to go on. And then on the 31st of August, so some, what, three, three weeks later, um, Polly Nichols was found um, in Bucks Row, um, which is parallel to the, the main thoroughfare in, in Whitechapel, the Whitechapel House, High Street. It's kind of behind the, the underground station, the underground railway station. And she's found there um, by a man who's on his way to work. So it's the early hours of the morning and the man is on his way to work. He finds his body. He calls another man over. Uh, they look at it and they think, my goodness, it's a woman. Then they go off running for a policeman. A policeman comes along and it's that kind of thing. And it's when they get her to the mortuary, nothing grand, just a place in a poorhouse. Um, they, they discover that, that she's had her throat slashed and she's had her abdomen opened up. And I think this is when they realise they've got something more going on than just your average murder. Because killings are, you know, people get killed, um, but the extra brutality is what, what um, perhaps makes this case so different and so shocking. So the killer has obviously got another motive other than just murder. And they... The, the press start to connect these stories on September 8th. Um, this takes place not very far away. And then we're also, again, to paint the picture, 
these are happening very close together. If you, if you pull up a map of the area, which you could, you could easily do, there are plenty on the internet, you will see that these murders are mapped out in a very small geographical area. Um, which is why it's kind of interesting, because if you take something like the work of David Cantor, um, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of profiled the, from, the, from, the, um, from, from various serial murders, you can map this and then you can start to see where, where possibly the killer might have lived. It's kind of what Andy and I did. Um, so in Hanbury Street, which is just off of Brick Lane, um, 29 Hanbury Street, uh, uh, Annie Chapman is discovered. And, and in her case, she seemed to have been laid out in the backyard. It wasn't her house. She'd been using that yard to regular haunt for prostitutes. You know, dark, take them through into the back garden and then you can have the, 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 the paid for sex act. It's nothing very, we're not, we're not talking sort of fancy brothels here. It's very, very, very rough and ready. And her body is found, and again, her abdomen's been attacked, and she's had organs removed. So typically, the, the organs that you find, that in, in not all cases, the organs that are removed in the various cases of the women that are murdered tend to be the um, kidney, in the case of Catherine Eddowes, um, the um, uterus, is the right word, yeah, the uterus, um, in a couple of the women's cases, um, in the case of Mary Kelly, I think that the heart was also removed. There's, he's taking trophies. There are different ways to explain this. He's clearly taking body parts. Um, he's before, and, and in other places, he also creates other mutilations. So, I mean, there are, there are in the case of Catherine Eddowes, he, he clips off the tip of her nose and he, he cuts, um, clips her ears and makes marks underneath her eyes. I mean, so he's, he's disfiguring her face. In Mary Kelly's case, he strips nearly all the flesh off of the poor woman's body, um, cuts off her breasts. I mean, it, he, that's the only murder that takes place indoors. It looks like he's got more time to do that. So this is a killer who is, is acting quite quickly because that we can work this out from some of the police beats and the timings that actually he didn't, didn't have very long to commit any of these actions. Um, in some cases, he, 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 takes, he seems to take some form of trophy. Um, in others, um, he, he does less, but that might be because he's disturbed. You know, in the case of Elizabeth Stride, she is just, he, she's just killed. No, no mutilations take place. Um, and I think that's also led people to say, well, are these the same killer? Because they're not doing exactly the same thing. Um, but I think that... Um, that's what makes this case different to most of the other murders around the time. It's the serial nature of it, the close geographical um, proximity to where all the murders take place, um, and the fact that he doesn't just kill, he mutilates and takes human organs. In um, the United States, one of the other cases I covered was called the Golden uh, State Murders. And what happened in that, there was uh, ultimately the, the gentleman was caught and he confessed to, to murders all over uh, Southern California. But because it was in different locations, different uh, municipalities, each one of the municipalities had their own name for him and thought he was an individual um, killer, whereas it turns out he was this just the one and the only. So I think maybe it's a good time now to, to uh, you know, the second part of your book is about the uh, Thames Torso murders, which you and uh, Anthony, um, I'm, I'm sorry, a Andy Wise, um, tie together as uh, possibly the same killer. So let's um, sort of fold in the Thames Torso murders uh, now. The Thames Torso murders, which most people have treated as two separate things. In that case, there are, um, yeah, from... From um, May 1887, and um, these these appear at different points, and they and they come over, they cross over with the Ripper case. So, for example, during the so-called in and around the so-called double events, on one night, two women are murdered in the same night. Elizabeth Stride is murdered in Burner Street. Then, about 15 minutes run away, if you, you know, not not very far, half a mile away. Um, 
just in, inside the city of London, so just over the edge into that posh bit, um, uh, although it's not very posh, you find Catherine Eddowes is murdered. And Liz Stride is not mutilated, so it's clear the killer is not satisfied, so he, he kills again on the same night. But at the same time as this, or in and around that same time, uh, a, a human torso, you know, decapitated, nothing else, just a human torso, wrapped up, is found by a, by a builder working on a building site in central London. Now, the building site, kind of interestingly, and you wonder whether the killer was deliberately doing this, is a new building for Scotland Yard, which, again, I'm sure your listeners will know, is, is the headquarters of the Metropolitan Police. So right under, literally under their noses, the killer is burying a body part. Now, these things continue, and they continue, uh, say, in September 1889, so kind of a year after we think the Ripper murders have finished, a policeman on his beat finds another torso in a place called Pynchon Street. Now, Pynchon Street is right in the East End. It's five minutes walk, walk from where Elizabeth Stride was murdered. It's five minutes walk from where another suspected Ripper victim, Francis Coles, was murdered a couple of years later. It's right in that zone. It's kind of interesting. Um, but these murders are different in, in the fact that these are torsos and they find limbs, they never find the heads. Now, if you want to dispose of a dead body, particularly in a, in a world where the, most of the identification is gonna be through features and not through DNA, which of course they didn't have, um, then cut the head off and get rid of the head because the head is what's gonna identify it, isn't it? So, but those two series of murders are going on at the same time, um, which is one of the things that made Andy and I go, really, two serial killers? I mean, how common is it to have two serial killers? at the same time, in the same city, broadly in the same area. So right, that's one, two, three, four, probably. Four, five, four or five. Yeah, four or five. There's one a few years earlier. I mean, torso, the finding dead body parts in London is not, it does happen from time to time because there's a river. You want to get rid of the bodies, you chuck them in the river, don't you? I mean... Now, could they tell of, well, I guess you can from a torso, could they tell that they were, what, the gender of the torso? They could tell the gender. Yeah, they could tell the gender. Um, and they could, the coroners could do an autopsy and do things like, you know, what, what are they eating? And they could make commentaries on it. And they do in these women. They, they, they generally think they're, they're poor. Um, one of them, they say, is reasonably well-fed. One of them, they reckon she, she'd probably, they'd never had a child. They could make that kind of, those kind of clues. I mean, forensic medicine is not great, as I'm sure you know in the, in the late 19th century, but it is improving. But we know that the Ripper killer, for example, cut the, cut the throats of his victims and probably strangled them first, um, whether just to subdue. It would make sense if you, if you do that. And cutting the throat makes sense because if you cut the throat, you can, you can, they can bleed out. If you then want to go to town on the body, so to speak, with, again, without being glib about it, then you're not going to get covered in, in blood. And if you push the victim down and the, the blood sprays away from you again, then you're not going to get covered in blood. So, you know, there's lots of talk about that. The, the killer could have been covered in blood. I'm sure he would have been partly covered in blood, but we shouldn't assume he's not going to cut them in front of him and get sprayed. That would be an insane thing to do. So I think you lose a lot of that forensic ability to examine what, happen to those bodies because they've been cut up but equally we we think they were cut up in a safe place like a slaughterhouse that would make perfect sense so if you've got somebody who has access to slaughterhouses then perhaps on some occasions he had that time to torture the, the women kill the women and then dispose of their bodies i, I mean there's a there's a certain un, unpleasant logic to it now, on, uh, although there were no um, police tip lines at the time, I'm sure the public involved themselves in uh, trying to, quote unquote, help the police catch uh, Jack the Ripper. Loads of letters written to the papers, some of them claiming to be the killer, some of them giving advice to the police, you know, dress up as women, why don't you do that? That would be a good idea. Um, Criticising the police, 
um, calling on the government for more action. There were letters written to the Queen. The Queen even intervened, Queen Victoria. She wasn't amused by what was going on. Um, and yeah, people traced through the streets, particularly immigrants. Um, so there are generally three ideas about who the Ripper was that have come down to us. Um, and they were probably in circulation at the time that the Ripper was a, a doctor, someone with medical knowledge, that the Ripper was um, a toff, uh, a champagne Charlie, a member of the, the elite who was coming into Whitechapel and preying on women. And a lot of the Ripper suspects have been turned like that ever since. Or an immigrant Jew, maybe mad and crazed immigrant Jew. And, and they're all characters that we would describe as the other in, in society. So we're kind of used to that now. We, we look for the other in our own society, be he an Islamic terrorist or somebody on the far right or whatever. We, we have those characters. And in, in the 19th century London, doctors, toffs and immigrants all fitted those characters. Now, speaking of Queen Victoria, um, I believe in the 20th century, there was a um, idea circulated, a conspiracy that involved the royal family at the time. Am I right? Yeah, well, this is something that emerges in the 1970s, I think. I mean, without looking too much at the gestation of the story, the, in simple ideas, this is the idea that there was a, people love a conspiracy. I think there are a few of those stories going around at the moment about conspiracies. Um, as a historian, um, I reject all conspiracies. Conspiracies are generally speaking a good way to get people to look in the other direction rather than the truth. But this, this is the idea that the murders happen because of a liaison between a member of the royal family, um, a, a royal prince, um, not Harry, but in this case, um, Eddie, as he was called. Um, um, so he is the grandson of Queen Victoria. Um, so he is in line to the throne. You know, not direct. He's not likely to become a, become king anytime soon because you've got Edward the Edward who will become Edward the Seventh to to come along first. But um, Albert Edward Victor, I think his name is his full name. Although probably it's even longer with royal names. Um, he apparently has a liaison with a woman. Annie Crook, and um, who he he falls in love with, and she's a she's a she's a you know small town girl. She's she's a member of the working class. She's Catholic and probably a prostitute. Um, so it's not generally what the royal family looks for in a in a in a princess, um, and so she's spirited away. I mean, he has a baby, she has a baby and it's spirited away and um, uh, and then the whole thing has to be hushed up. So how are you going to hush it up? So you, you, you kind of bring in, um, you take her off to an asylum then you find out that she's got lots of friends who've discovered the affair. So they're all going to go to the newspapers and they're threatening the government. And these friends are all led by uh, Mary Ann Kelly, who, uh, Mary Jane Kelly, who, who knows about the baby and has looked after the baby. And so you've got to get rid of all of them. And they're all on the mates are Catherine Eddowes, Mary Kelly, Annie Chapman, Polly Dickles. You put it all together. And what better way for the Victorian state to get rid of um, these, these, this, this nasty story to make it go away than to brutally murder and mutilate these five women in the heart of the city and raise a massive storm of publicity you know, excuse me, but I don't think that's very viable as a story. But then, of course, the conspiracy works perfectly, as it does for all conspiracies. It's because, ah, oh, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Because everything is hushed up by the Freemasons, um, by the royal family, by the government, who are all interlinked. The head of the police is a Freemason, the head of the government's a Freemason, you know, blah, blah, blah. The, the royal physician is a Freemason. You've got this brilliant story. And, and as with all conspiracy stories, you know, you only need a little segment of possibility truth and that allows people who want to believe it to then fill in all the gaps and say, well, aha, you know, the absence of evidence isn't the evidence of absence. I mean, you know, come on. It's, it doesn't work on so many levels, but fundamentally it doesn't work because it's supposed, it's supposed to be this coach going through the city, going through Whitechapel. I mean, and a, and a doctor in a, 
tall hat and a Gladstone band and a cloak, which is all the images we get of the Ripper. And quite frankly, it, it just wouldn't work. It just wouldn't work. Oh, well, it would probably make a good Netflix series, though. But um, there is another letter that is mentioned in your book um, called the From Hell Letter. And um, it, it has um, some gruesome details to it. Why don't you uh, uh, tell my listeners about the From Hell Letter? Okay, so when Catherine Eddowes was killed in Mitre Square, which is just on the just just into the City of London jurisdiction, City of London Police jurisdiction, London has two police forces, just to be confusing. Um, the the Ripper moves the, the killer leaves the area and runs off, and we know he runs off into this into back into the East End. He doesn't go into the West End; he goes into the East End. We know this because. He, a piece of cloth is found by a policeman on patrol shortly afterwards in a, in a street called Gawson Street. Um, and um, in Gawson Street, there's um, this piece of cloth is found and some writing on the wall, which seems to suggest the Jews or the men, you know, the Jews are involved in this. The other thing that happens shortly after um, Catherine Eddowes is that um, a guy who runs like a neighborhood watch scheme, uh, the, the Whitechapel Vigilance, um, association or society a guy called George Lusk receives a package in the post and inside this package is a letter the from hell letter and something else there's something in a little box as well and the package and the letter kind of kind of says you know dear sir um, I send you um, half a kidney that I've taken from this woman you know I've preserved it for you um, the other half I, I fried and ate it was very nice um, uh, I may, you know, I may bring you some more when I, when I, I might, you know, might bring you the knife that I use for it. It's a, it's a kind of nasty letter written in red ink, um, and accompanying it is half a human kidney, is in this box. So, this is kind of like you know bringing in cannibalism, and this is letter from the, um, is this letter from the killer? Is it a hoax? There's a suggestion. It's sent to the London Hospital, which is on Whitechapel High Street, big London hospital, the, the, the London. Um, and there uh, uh, a guy called Dr. Openshaw tests the, the kidney. It's human. He says it's human. It's, it's been preserved in alcohol. You know, it could mean that it's been preserved in alcohol because it's a medical specimen. Some medical students having a prank. The letter could be the only one that's genuine or it could be a complete hoax. Now, I know you didn't set out uh, to write this book as a whodunit as much as uh, what happened, but you and uh, Andrew Wise do sort of triangulate on an individual, James Hardiman. Uh, and uh, so why don't you tell my listeners um, why you sort of focus on him as a very good candidate for being Jack the Ripper. I'd never wanted to approach the Ripper case as a whodunit. Um, I've never been that interested in that. I, I think I was, no, that's not true. I've always been interested in playing that sort of kind of parlor game. But Andy was very clear that he thought James Hardiman was the killer. And I thought, well, when he talked to me about him, I thought he fits the profile of the sort of person I think the Ripper could be. And I was pretty clear that the Ripper had to be somebody who could move around the East End, who um, had freedom of movement in the sense that he didn't have family that was going to be looking at what he was doing all the time. Um, this guy needs to be able to, to do things. So he, he needs to have you know, the three things you need. You know, he needs, he needs to, to have opportunity, motive, and means. Um, those are the three things a, a detective would look for. So Hardiman is a um, local man, East Ender, knows the area and it's a phenomenal area to wander around you'll get lost you need a guide in the east end it's a bit like the lower east side except we don't have the grids that allow you to move around your cities so it's it's difficult um and as a net of the police is drawing in he certainly needs to be able to know what the police are doing and to be able to escape so that's kind of important so local knowledge is vital here he's um a cat's meat man so what's a cat's meat man well, he's kind of like a pet, a pet shop dealer, uh, a pet, pet food dealer. So he sells pet food um, on the streets. And in the 1880s, that didn't mean like tins of nice chunks or crumbles of cat food. It meant um, horse meat um, from, the, from the tremendous trade in dead horses, because everything is horse drawn. 
So horses die and get slaughtered, um, and you boil the meat and you use it. And, the, and it gets sold mostly for pet food, but sometimes for human consumption, probably amongst the very poor. That's the reality of it. So he's selling, selling this door to door. Um, everyone would know who he was. He'd be a very familiar face. He wouldn't be worrying or threatening to anybody. Now, he has a wife. Um, they've been married a long time. I think probably quite a good relationship, but he doesn't have any kids. Then he has a daughter who's born, but dies very soon afterwards. And then his w wife falls sick and she dies. She's in hospital for about a year and then she dies. So he's, there's a suggestion, and I think it's reasonable, that, that potentially... He had, he had caught syphilis, he had passed that on to his wife, and congenitally that had gone to the daughter. It's difficult to prove the evidence of this because technically they died of tuberculosis, but actually tuberculosis, particularly in children, is very hard to detect, and it's very similar to syphilis. Syphilis tends to mimic other diseases, so there's a, there's a kind of connection there, which is worth exploring. And the other thing about Hardiman is he seems to be somebody trying to better himself. Maybe learning to read, having disposable income, dressing a bit more flashily, you know, a bit of Jack the Lad, to use that kind of expression. So he was probably trying to earn as much money as he could. And this probably means that he was working for a firm of slaughtermen, slaughterhouses, the biggest firm in London. They almost had a monopoly. They were called Harrison Barber. And they have slaughterhouses all over the city, all over, all over the capital, um, including in Whitechapel. So this would allow him to move around between these different bases. And if he wanted to be the person who killed the Thames Torso victims and the Ripper victims, he had that perfect network where he was trusted, he could escape, he wouldn't, no one would suspect the hands that he was wearing an apron or he was covered in blood or anything like that. All of that would fit with his persona. And if he had syphilis, we also think he was trying to get it cured. So that gives him a base quite close to one of the London hospitals near the centre, which places him quite close to the, um, the site of the torso murder, the torso that is found at New Scotland Yard. And as to motive, um, you state in your book, Jack and the Thames Torso Murders, it would certainly seem plausible that Hardiman, uh, having contracted syphilis from a local woman, could have gone on a rampage to exact an awful vengeance on a class of woman he believed responsible for the death of his daughter. And I think also interesting in your book is that um, you point out that the treatment for syphilis at the time was mercury tablets, uh, quicksilver, which was highly toxic. And a common side effect was the appearance of ulcers on the patient's uh, face and throat. And in several witness descriptions, given for sightings of the Ripper or suspicious persons associated with the Whitechapel or torso murders, ulcers or lesions were noted on the left side of the suspect's face. Several years ago, a couple of Ripperologists. So Ripperologists are the guys that the amateur historians uh, um, who have been writing and researching this case, people like the Whitechapel Society, which is a tremendous bunch of people who have been researching that local history. Um, not just the killer, but increasingly the area, the victims, the society. But they, these guys had done a little bit of work on um, the case and they thought Hardiman was worth investigating. And they tracked him down to potentially a, a prison entry in Wandsworth Prison, to one of London's big Victorian prisons. Um, and they wrote a short article about it and I think a small follow-up piece on it and they hadn't gone anywhere with it and Andy had found this you know, as, a good, as a good historian he'd, he'd dug this up and he'd gone this is something we should dig into in more detail so he then went off and started to do digging into things like census records um, we couldn't find any business records for, for, for um, Harrison Barber they don't exist unfortunately um, but we could find maps, we could, we could tie him to different places, um, we could do the research that connected the dots as far as we possibly could. If we could find Harrison Barber records, then we could definitely say it worked for them. What we probably could say, you know, it's like um, balance of probabilities, really, because, you know, if you're a slaughterman working in the meat trade, as a pet, if you're a 
cat's meat dealer, which we know he was from the family, his family history, then, um, and then from census records, then it kind of follows that he's probably connected to Harrison Barber because it's kind of like, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, you know, a, um, it's like Acme. Um, it's the Acme of, 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 um, of, of horse, horse slaughterers. You know, it, you didn't slaughter animals in, in, in 19th century London unless you were connected to Harrison Barber because they had all of it. So if he worked in that line, he was connected with them. So there's a, we don't know for sure, but we can be pretty confident. And in some respects, we need to prove that or Andy needs to prove that or somebody needs to disprove it. So at the moment, Hardiman remains one of those characters which, which deserves more investigation. Um, is he 100% the Ripper? I couldn't say that. Is anybody? We couldn't say that. Um, I do find it intriguing that after all these years, uh, there is still such interest in the Ripper case uh, in books and documentaries, uh, made-for-TV movies, um, trying to get at the reason why it is so uh, popular. And in your book, you have a quote from Ian Sinclair uh, and from his book, Whitechapel Scarlet Tracings of 1987. His quote, there's something inherently seedy and salacious and continually picking the scabs off these crimes, peering at mutilated bodies, listing the undergarments, trekking over the tainted ground in quest of some long-delayed occult frisson. Um, now, your reason for writing your book um, is a little less prosaic, but just as important. There's at least five and possibly up to 19 human beings that were murdered in a, in a relatively short space of time in, in, a, in London in that period, who, whose murders are unsolved. Um, there's no closure, as, as again, I think the, the Americans would, would call it. And that, that is probably worth it. The lives of those women matter much more than who the killer was. That's, I think that's very important. And I champion what Hallie Rubenhold has done there to say, to raise that up as a, an important thing. Um, the study of this case has brought an awful lot of people to a good understanding of what 19th century London was like and the difficulties that people in the East End and other parts like south of the river in Southwark and Bermondsey, these sorts of people having living. It exposes the inequalities of, of, of the British Empire in the late 19th century. And I think that's an important thing for people to recognise, the poverty, the problems of immigration, um, the problems that the immigrants had and the prejudices that they faced and, and their role in building Britain as a major power because we were a major power back then. I mean, it's a long time ago, but back then we were quite important, not so much today. And so I think that's, it's important to study the case because it brings you into studying all of that. It tells you an awful lot about the power of news, sensation, fake news and all that kind of stuff. And then when you come on to the mythologizing, it reminds us that history is an important discipline because quite a lot of what we know is is just repeated from something else so a lot of ripper books just repeat the same things that another book read another book wrote Whereas, so if if somebody wrote a book in 1970 and somebody read that book and then wrote another book and said that everything in that book was right and carried it across you're just repeating falsehoods even if you're doing it unknowingly proper history digs in, it looks at its sources, it interrogates them, it, it asks questions about it. And that's really a crucial thing to do for a historian. And the Ripper case actually lends itself quite well to that because it's full of fake news, full of mythologizing. Like I said, the name Jack, you know, the name Jack the Ripper is a made up name. It's, it's all mythology. It's not about top hats and all that kind of stuff. It's, um, it, it's quite interesting in, in actually unpacking that and finding out what we actually do know. So it's an exercise in, in doing that. It's, in, it's interesting. And in itself, I mean, you know, the, the case is unusual. It's still one of the most unpleasant murder series in, in English history. It tells you about um, misogyny, the hatred of women. It, it tells you about the bitter lives of poor women who are forced into prostitution. I think it's got an awful lot of human stories going on in there that make it worth studying. And until they put a statue up or a monument of some kind to those women i'm going to keep on telling it because i think it's important well dr gray uh, big ben on the wall tells me uh it is time uh we need to say goodbye but i do want to thank you so much 
for joining me today on Murder Most Foul for a very interesting and intriguing um, look back at a uh, a very interesting case. Uh, your book on the subject is Jack and the Thames Torso Murders, uh, written with the help of uh, Andrew Wise. But I know you've written other books, and so why don't you just tell my audience a little bit about that and maybe how they could get in touch with you if they'd like to uh, pick your brain on on this or any other subject. Thank you, yes. I mean, um, it, I've, written a, I've written a few books. I mean, I think the books that are the most pertinent to this are probably, the, as the book you kindly mentioned, Jack and the Thames Torso Murders, which is published by Amberley in, in England. I guess it's probably available on Amazon. Right? I guess if you have Amazon in the United States, which I'm pretty sure you do. Um, my most recent one, which I guess if your readers, if your listeners are interested in murders, map it, um, mapping murder, um, murder maps by Thames and Hudson, which also has you know, characters like H.H. Um, uh, Holmes, who is another ripper suspect, of course, in, in, in the United States. Um, and London Shadows, which is a bit older now, but it's a, a little bit um, more serious, I guess. It's a more academic book about, about London, but I think if you can track that down, I think it might be interesting. Um, I write uh, a fairly regular, not, not quite as regular as it was since I got promoted recently, but a reg regular blog called The Police Magistrate, which is um, all, all one word, thepolicemagistrate.blog. And that's um, all about the, the city, the London's police magistrate courts in the 19th century. So if you're interested in, in short little blogs about prostitutes, drunks, ne'er-do-wells, thieves, fraudsters, um, wife beaters, and the like. All some my, of those good, stories, all my uh, good friends. All my yeah, good friends. some of those stories sad, some of those stories um, funny, some disturbing, whatever, and give you a picture of what London was like in the second half of the 19th century. Then go and look at the police magistrate. Um, and you'll find my contact great, details on there as well. So. Well, this this has yeah. been a pleasure. It's fun to talk across. This is the first time I've talked across the pond. And um, I hope someday to be coming again when, when all this clears up. I'm retired. I'm pushing my wife out the door to, for her to get retired from her dental practice. And we <laughs> hope that we have a little bit of money saved up that we can do a little traveling. So certainly uh, London's on the, uh, England's on the list. So in the meantime, um, please stay safe. Stay healthy, and uh, thanks again. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. And I would be remiss if I didn't thank my audience. Uh, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Murder Most Foul. Uh, you can listen to this or any of the past uh, episodes through any podcast platform. And if you'd like to uh, leave me a comment, you can do that uh, via my uh, web page, which is www dot murder most foul all one word no caps no spaces dot com from that page you can link to my email and leave me a comment or two or even maybe the mention of a of a case you'd like me to take a look at in the meantime stay safe and until next time